0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome back to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn.
1: And I'm Catherine Klein, and I'm wondering who the singer is. I'm liking this. That
0: is Sam Smith featuring? It's, it, it's actually. A new Sam Smith it is, it's Calvin Harris featuring Sam Smith.
1: I don't think I know who Calvin Harris is. I I'm mean, I'm telling you, our Hits One
0: colleagues on <laughs> Channel Two really just need to have me because I'm like, hey, that's. that's. Uh, this is
1: my, you know, in, in the, the many future careers, I like. What? Could be a DJ that would be entertaining. <laughs>
0: Ever? Ever? <laughs> no, that'd be fun. Um, but this is Dollars and Change, where we talk about the intersection of business and social impact. Our last guest, we were talking to Kimball Snyder, who, you know, is highlighting the importance and positive effects of having paid family leave—not um, just maternal leave, not just parental leave, but also just you know caregiver leave across yeah. the board. And so we're shifting gears to our next guest, uh, who is Michael Van Brunt, who is the senior director of sustainability at a company called Covanta. Welcome to the show, Michael. Uh, thank
2: you, Nick. Uh, nice to nice to be on the program this morning.
0: Of course, we're delighted to have you. And I can tell you right out of the gate that I wasn't familiar with with your company. So tell us about your background and how you came to Covanta, and what do you guys do? Uh,
2: uh, sure. So you know maybe maybe I'll start just going right into what uh, what Covanta is. You know, I think we get that a lot, Nick. Um, You know, so we're a company that's, you know, squarely in sort of the the world of providing uh, municipalities, corporate customers, sustainable waste management services and solutions. Uh, Our core business, what we're probably best known for, is the ownership and operation of energy from waste facilities. So these are facilities that uh, uh, basically take materials that are left over after recycling, um, and thereby, you know, are helping communities, you know, solve a, their solid waste management problems, um, but then also take that waste and put it to a second use and put it into a use where we can generate and recover energy from it. And uh, in doing so, we're actually able to help reduce greenhouse gas emissions relative to landfilling, uh, conserve land, and uh, complement recycling efforts.
1: So, so, Michael, hi, this is uh, Catherine Klein. Uh, good to have you on the show when you describe Covanta's business, you know my reaction is is uh, like this is a no brainer. Why are, you know why are we not doing more of of uh, you know energy from waste? This sounds absolutely essential. Um, you know, and uh, again, sounds like a no brainer. What are the what are the barriers that that uh, you know your company faces in getting your products and services um, into markets all over the country and beyond? Why? As, as I, you know, if my reaction is, wait a minute, everybody should be doing this. Every municipality should be doing this, but obviously that's uh, not the case. So, what are the barriers?
2: Right. I think mean, you know, great question, uh, and it really comes down to you know basic economics and public policy. Um, where we do see energy from waste really flourishing right now is in the European Union, particularly in uh, the UK right now. In Ireland, we just opened up a a brand new facility last year in Dublin, Ireland. And we've got a pipeline of great development in the U.K. And what's really driving that is very progressive public policy, which is geared toward um, overall finding better materials for – or by finding better uses for the waste that we generate and getting it out of landfills uh, up into the what we like to call the waste hierarchy. Um, so, so instead of just putting it in the, in the land and in the ground, uh, European policy and U.K. policy is really geared toward – um, moving it to things like recycling, composting, anaerobic digestion, and for what's left over, energy recovery.
1: Interesting. Uh, can you give our listeners an example? You know, if, if folks are listening, you know, wherever Omaha, Philadelphia, San Diego, um, or you know, more rural communities, what? What would look different, be different, if those municipalities were contracting with, uh, you know, a company like yours or other companies in this space? What, what practically would be happening that that's different?
2: Well, it, it's a it's an interesting question because I think that's one of the challenges we face as a society in managing waste, particularly in the developed world, is that once I put stuff out on the curb, you know, from my perspective, it just kind of disappears. Somebody else takes care of it.
1: Right from a from a, right from a consumer from an individual perspective, we hope that you know that it's recy- we hope and or we simply believe that it is indeed recycled.
2: Exactly, and you know, so we're hoping that the recycling gets recycled, and we just expect that uh, the trash in our black bin or our brown bin um, winds up getting managed effectively and properly. Um, so, from a consumer standpoint, there's not a whole lot different in terms of. Uh, whether that material winds up going from energy foyer or, or to a landfill. Um, what we do see is when we bring people in um, to tour our facilities here in the U.S. is they're just blown away uh, by the technology and by this chance that we have to recover energy from, from the waste that's left over at the curb. And one of the things we've seen with the communities in which we operate is we typically – um, operate in communities that have a heightened awareness of waste management issues, whether it be for, say, example, on Long Island, uh, where you don't have a lot of land, you don't have cheap access to land, you need to get the waste through New York City um, to to landfills in um, you know Pennsylvania or other states like that. You know, so so in those communities, there's a more heightened awareness about waste and how we manage it and how we can extract value from it. And I think that's the type of Thinking that really drives um, thinking about solutions like energy recovery, uh, rather than just putting things in a landfill.
0: Uh, Michael, I'm struck when you talk about sort of the New York area, Long Island, um, and and how they have to manage it. I'm struck because my understanding of the Philadelphia waste management market, if you will, is incredibly fragmented. And what I mean by that is we actually have a ton of not ton but many 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 different operators people different companies local family businesses that actually pick up the the Hmm. waste from like you know on the streets and so um or from the curbs so that has to play a huge role in trying to penetrate a market like philadelphia because this is really difficult you know we're not even coordinated in who picks up our trash right right so, how do you navigate? I mean, is Philadelphia a unique example, or are other cities like that, where you know, even if we wanted to have a bigger public policy discussion, the actual implementation would be a nightmare?
2: Well, that you know, that's a that's a very good point. Um, you know, and there's certainly tools that 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 cities can do um, for for facilities that they own on on their own, for example. So, uh, about half of the facilities that we operate are actually municipally or government owned assets and we operate those facilities on their behalf so uh, a good example is you know let's turn down to florida so the lee county florida facility for example we operate that facility on behalf of lee county mm-hmm. so in that type of a market um, the way that uh... uh the current uh, legal framework works is that lee county can direct waste into that particular facility um, in a market like philadelphia it becomes much more just an open market, and I think that's one of the things that, that fundamentally people don't always r- realize about the waste market is that we're out there every day competing against um, other vendors who are providing a service, and that service being the management of waste remaining after recycling. It really was str- – I mean I'm, I'm, I will say
0: I was totally naive to this market until I moved to Philadelphia where like growing up in Ca- my community in Kansas, like I saw the mus- municipality come by you know, and pick mm-hmm. up the garbage from the curb living in um in Austin, Texas, I think it was waste management. You know, it was like I knew that there was just sort of one company, but here then I moved to Philadelphia and I'm like there are like a million different types of trash trucks. wow you know, yeah. Ro- yeah. Ro- yeah, roaming the streets yeah. at any given time.
1: So, uh, Michael, I want to go back to um some of the things you've been describing and and have you uh you know, paint a picture, tell us the details. Um if I'm a good recycler, you know, and I try hard, but maybe I'm, I, you know, and maybe I'm an over exuberant uh, recycler, I'm just putting newspaper, paper, cardboard boxes, uh, milk cartons, cans, yogurt, you know, containers, uh, et cetera, et cetera, the top of a Starbucks cup and the cup uh, into my recycling bin. Um, with the hope that this is all getting used, and we, you know, and, and you keep talking about waste from, I think, waste from recycling, waste after recycling. Um, so I suppose the most naive question is, well, well, wait a minute, it doesn't get recycled? What are we talking
2: about? Well, that's right. And I think there's, there's a lot of different things we can sort of dive into there. I think the first one is um, some of what you're describing is this idea of aspirational recycling. Um, that we like to call it in the industry is, you know, people putting stuff in the recycling bin with the hopes that it gets recycled.
1: Yeah, I have a lot of aspiration like that. Yeah, I actually, yeah I'm one of those people,
2: yes. No, and you're not alone. And I think right. a lot of people uh, have, have done that. And I think that's all sort of an outgrowth from where things were back um, in the 80s and the 90s. We were seeing a huge fundamental growth in the recycling markets, um, you know, fueled by both sort of the, the, uh, the landfill crisis at the time. I don't know if, if, if you remember. I certainly do, but the New York City garbage barge sailing around. Um, and so there's a huge effort to find alternative ways of, uh, of managing waste. And so recycling grew. Uh, energy recovery grew at the same time. And one of the things that happened is that communities in trying to drive up recycling rates went to things called single stream uh, MRFs or materials recovery facilities. And and why I bring that up is that has played into some of the challenges we're seeing in the recycling markets today. So in an effort to sort of get people to recycle as much as they possibly could, we encourage people to put stuff in in a single bin, and invariably those bins became contaminated, so contaminated with things that aren't recyclable. Those materials have to be removed either at the materials recovery facility, Mm -hmm. which is sort of the first step where that recyclable bin would go, Um, But then also, if it doesn't get cleaned out there, it has to get removed at the processor. And that's what sort of precipitated some of the early action we saw um, from China was this idea is like China saying we can't take this contaminated material anymore. We can't take mixed paper bales with lots of plastic. So they started instituting policies that have really cracked down, um, and many would say and I would say to a – um, to such an extensive degree that it's made it impractical to try to get back to the actual commodity itself. So, for example, when we ship a bale of paper to as a country to China, they're expecting now that there there would be less than 0.5% contamination. Mm-hmm. So, for example, that could mean that like a sneaker that accidentally got in there or a piece of plastic that got into a bale, you know, could render that whole bale unsalable in the, in the Chinese market. So we were sort of using China as our crutch. They were for a long time taking relatively contaminated recyclables that we had collected, um, and and now they're they're basically saying no. And, And in fact, what they've done is they've completely upended the recycling market.
0: You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And we're speaking with Michael Van Brunt, who's the Senior Director of Sustainability at Covanta. And Michael, I'm struck by Catherine's question about sort of the single stream recycling and what you how you sort of unpacked that for us, which is super helpful. And um, I'm reminded of when I lived in Germany. And my it was my first foray. I mean, I, we were sort of single stream recyclers before, but, man, I separated everything <laughs> when I lived in Germany. I mean, different you know, green glass, white glass or clear glass, brown glass, plastic. I mean, it was just, it was definitely a behavior change for me. But um, one of the things I'm struck by in terms of sort of the stats is our producer was sharing that, you know, Germany, for instance, landfills zero percent, recycles 65 percent and sends 35 percent to energy from waste. Going back to the topic we first sort of started talking about on the show. And you're saying China, there's a market that people are buying these materials. Are they buying them to create energy from waste what you know, where what happens once China accepts this is it, or what are your facilities? I don't know what the market on that end looks like.
2: Yeah, I think it, it's probably useful to just like let's take a step back and think about you know the waste hierarchy, and you know a lot of people kind of are familiar with the reduce, reuse, cycle. That's kind of the mantra of those are the best things that we can do with the waste that we generate. You know what I like to tell people is that the only waste that doesn't have an impact is the waste that we don't generate. Anything else that we do downstream, whether it be anaerobic digestion, composting, uh, recycling, um, energy recovery has an impact at that point. So we want to try to reduce the waste stream as much as we can. Then, you know, we want to do recycling. Um, Recycling is, you know, from an environmental perspective, a a very helpful, very beneficial activity. Helps prevent us sort of digging up uh, new raw materials to make them into new products. It helps save the energy that we invested in those products from the beginning. Uh, in their manufacture and development um, and then you know where we fit in, where our core business really fits in, is around the energy recovery piece. So that's kinda like the next best option after we've sort of exhausted the recycling option and instead of taking materials and putting them back into the economy as, as another material, we're putting those materials back into the economy as a source of energy. And so that's kinda how we fit in in a broader perspective. So you know, one of the questions has always been, what exactly does happen to your recycling? Um, I think in a lot of cases, the material was being, you know, recycled in China. China certainly has a robust economy, huge demand for raw materials, including plastic and paper. Um, but I do think that we were seeing some materials winding up in China who were going for energy recovery. And I suspect that there was probably some materials that were just getting landfilled. Um, but the 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 core thing is, is like how do we how do we sort of move up that waste hierarchy? Um and, and, and one of the things I wanted to touch on too is what we're finding out now is that you know we need to, to really take care of infrastructure here in the US. And we've heard this message a lot in terms of roads and railroads and transportation infrastructure and energy infrastructure. The waste management sector is no different. And we have for years, I think gotten away with relying on other people's infrastructure, predominantly China's, in terms of helping to manage our waste stream. Um, we're seeing now is that we're going to have to start building our own infrastructure to take the recycled materials, turn them back into a sheet of paper, for example. And we've got a great story. It's a partner we work with up in, uh, at our Niagara Falls facility. The last few years they built a brand-new, 100% recycled uh, paperboard mill and the really neat thing about that facility is that we actually supply them steam through a steam loop. So our Niagara Falls facility is an energy from waste facility. It's a, it's a combined heat and power operation. So it generates both electricity and steam. So we're providing them steam, which they use to help make the recycled paper. And then in turn, they're actually sending us uh, the materials that they can't uh, turn back into paper. So it's a great story of, of how energy recovery and recycling can collaborate, and one of the things you're hearing people talk a lot about now is the circular economy. Mm-hmm. I was just going to bring that up, and that's why like, I like the poster example of, of what the circular economy could look like, and the roles that each part of the waste management system can play, uh, where energy recovery can be symbiotic with uh, a recycling facility.
1: So, uh, so one question we've we've talked a little bit more about the kind of downstream uh, use of waste. Uh, I am curious if we start, um, you know, we, we've we've directed you to and ask questions about, you know, individual recyclers, um, uh, you know, individual consumers. Are we as individual consumers, you know, the, the, the where we, you know, if you had, if you could focus on any body, any industry to reduce waste, should we be focusing on individual consumers? Should we be focusing on particular industries? You know, we've heard on this show about the fashion industry and, uh, you know, just what a, a huge polluter fashion is. Um, so where should, where, if you could wave a magic wand and get one industry, one segment to really pay attention to reducing waste, where would you, where would you wave that wand?
2: A great great question. I think, I think there's opportunities all over the place. Um, I think one of the big priorities right now is in uh, the food and beverage industry, Mm -hmm. Um, and certainly one of the things that we've become very aware of is how destructive methane is in terms of climate, and anything we can do to sort of reduce the amount of of food waste going into landfills um, is a a great story, not only uh, for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, um, but also for the opportunity it might play in terms of generating electricity in an anaerobic digestion facility but then also just getting back to the basic point of um, it's wasted food. And if we can put that food back into useful um, uh, production and back into feeding families and and even feeding animals, I think that's a great story. And I think I'm glad you brought up businesses because they've really done, I think, a tremendous job at driving more sustainable waste management, particularly here in the U.S. It's like we don't have – an overarching solid waste management policy in the US like we see in Europe, but companies have really taken up the slack. And we did a review of sustainability reports a few years back, and we've reviewed about, I think, about 100 different corporate sustainability reports. Fully 90% of them had some form of a waste-related goal. And some of our partners that we work with, like the Green Pack mill, the recycle mill I talked to you about up in Niagara Falls and Ford and General Motors and Subaru, have done a tremendous job at really fine-tuning their supply chains, um, reducing waste, and for what's left over, and this is the part that we, that we come into play with them and our partners with them, using the remaining last few percentage of the waste that they generate for energy recovery. And it's been a really great story.
0: And so in the last minute that we have here, um, you know, what are you most excited about in your role at Covanta?
2: you know two things i think one you know very excited about sort of the um the work that we've been doing around metals recovery you know i'm always amazed at how much metals are still in the uh, the um the waste when it comes into our facility mm. and so we have over the years increased our metals recovery substantially uh, we're now recovering about 550 or more thousand tons of metal every year. So that's enough to build six Golden Gate bridges. And that's not that's not metal that's been separated for recycling. That's stuff that's left over. And what about number two? So, so
0: metal's one.
2: Yep. Number two is ash. You know, so ash. about twenty five percent by weight of the material after combustion is ash. And very exciting stuff we're doing right now is to try to figure out how do we put that ash to better use in terms of generating aggregates that we can put back into the economy.
0: Well, we're going to have to take a short break. Thanks so much. We've been speaking with Michael Van Brunt, who is the Senior Director of Sustainability at Covanta. Stick with us. When we get back, we'll be speaking with Dina Kurla, who is the Executive Director of Sustainable Investing at UBS Asset Management. This is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132.